This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode features discussions of violence that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. It was a seemingly normal afternoon at the PNC Bank in Erie, Pennsylvania. Clients shuffled in line as tellers deposited checks and dispensed money. And at 2.27 p.m., a stocky, bald man walked in, looking disheveled. It was 46-year-old Brian Wells. He wore blue jeans and two t-shirts. The one underneath was gray. The one on top said, Guess Jeans. His chest bulged as if it were concealing something, and above his collar, he seemed to be wearing a neck brace. In his hand, he carried what appeared to be a cane. Brian strode confidently past the line of customers and straight up to the chief teller. She told him he needed to get in line and wait his turn. Without hesitating, he handed her a white envelope. She immediately understood. This was a robbery. Shakily, she pulled out the letter from inside the envelope and read. Then she looked up at Brian. He wasn't wearing a neck brace. It was a bomb. This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in kidnapping situations and what the human brain does when held captive. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second of three episodes on Brian Wells, more infamously known as the Pizza Bomber. On August 28th, 2003, Brian entered a PNC bank in Erie, Pennsylvania, with a letter demanding $250,000 in cash. 
This week, we'll examine the day's events from the moment Brian was unwittingly forced to wear an active bomb to the deadly police standoff that followed. Next week, we'll follow the aftermath of Brian's case as investigators struggle to understand the full picture. In the early afternoon of August 28, 2003, 46-year-old Brian Wells left Mamma Mia's Pizzeria to deliver an order to Upper Peach Street in Erie, Pennsylvania. But this was no ordinary delivery. It was all part of a larger plan. Brian had instructions to head to a TV tower on Peach Street. When he got there, he would be fitted with a fake collar bomb and sent to rob the local PNC bank. When he arrived at the location, though, Brian was startled to discover that his co-conspirators had rigged the collar with an active bomb dangling from the metal box at the bottom. The farce had taken a deadly turn. Brian tried to run, but his co-conspirators, Robert Panetti and Floyd Stockton, tackled him to the ground. He struggled against their grip as the two masterminds behind the plot, Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Bill Rothstein, strapped the live bomb around his neck. Bill had made the bomb himself. It was connected to two Sunbeam kitchen timers by an open circuit of wires and screws. When the timer reached the 12 o'clock position, the switch would close and the bomb would activate. A green plastic lever snapped the two semicircular arms of the collar in place. Unlocking it would require the insertion of two keys into two of the four keyholes at the front of the collar. But Brian's cohorts wouldn't tell him how to unlock the bomb until after he had robbed the bank. In an instant, he went from being a willing participant to a hostage. And if he wanted to survive, Brian had to do exactly what they said. When the struggle was over, Bill walked to his van and retrieved a gun shaped like a cane. He handed it to Brian. Marjorie told him to use it if the tellers didn't believe he was armed with a real bomb. Then she pulled a white t-shirt out of her purse. The Guess Jeans logo was written across the front. It was an ironic taunt. This case would inevitably require guesswork for everyone involved. Then Marjorie reminded Brian of his defense. If the police pulled him over, he was supposed to tell them that someone had forced him to wear the bomb, threatening to kill him if he didn't rob the bank on their behalf. Oddly enough, the crew took their time in getting to the actual robbery. While Brian sat, undoubtedly sick to his stomach with worry, everyone else chowed down on the pizza he had brought them. When they were finished eating, the crew tossed the insulated pizza bag into Bill's car. Then Marjorie drove off in her Jeep, taking another conspirator, Ken Barnes, with her. For some unknown reason, they made a pit stop at the local media play. Perhaps they had time to kill, or maybe Marjorie just wanted to buy a book, which she did. After browsing the store for 15 minutes, they were back on the road. Marjorie drove towards the strip mall where the PNC Bank was. She parked in an elevated parking lot in front of an Eaton Park restaurant, directly across from the strip mall entrance. From here, she and Ken could see everything. 
They watched through binoculars as Brian passed by in his Geo Metro. Bill trailed close behind in his Mercury Marquis. The two vehicles turned into the strip mall lot. Brian parked near the bank while Bill stopped his car in front of the Eyeglass World store. And then, at 2.27 p.m., Brian disappeared into the bank. The timer on the bomb had been started seven minutes before Brian entered the bank. As far as he knew, he had an hour until it detonated. But the screws and the mechanism interfered with the timer, shaving off three minutes. This meant that from the moment Brian walked through the door, he only had 50 minutes left. Brian strolled inside and casually made his way past the line of waiting customers to the chief teller. She told him to get in line and wait his turn, but Brian knew he didn't have time for that. He handed the teller his envelope. Right away, her eyes went wide with recognition. She had worked in banking long enough to know that this was a demand note. Shaking, she opened the envelope to find four pages covered in small handwriting. Receptionist, do not cause panic or many people will be killed. Sounding an alarm will interrupt this action and guarantee injuries and death. Involving authorities at this point will get the hostage and other people killed. Immediately, without causing alarm, you must contact the bank manager in private. The bomb hostage must accompany you. Bomb is expertly booby-trapped and cannot be disarmed in time unless keys are found by following instructions immediately. The letter went on to demand $250,000, an unreasonably high amount of cash for any bank to have in its vault. It also explained how, after he'd successfully obtained the money, Brian could locate the keys to save his life. The final line was clear and certain. Act now, think later, or you will die. It was signed, The Troubleshooters. The teller's eyes grew wide with disbelief. It was a long list of demands, and she knew she wouldn't be able to meet them. Helplessly, she looked at Brian, knowing he was also a victim of the situation. Brian stared back at her expectantly. Then he asked to speak to her manager. While the woman shuffled off to her manager's office, Brian grabbed a dum-dum lollipop from the bowl and popped it in his mouth. When the teller returned, she told him her manager was out to lunch. He wouldn't be back for another half hour. Brian was calm but adamant. He told her he didn't have that kind of time. He needed the $250,000. To prove he was serious, he lifted his shirt, revealing the bomb. By this point, the teller was undoubtedly panicked, but she couldn't oblige the outlandish request, no matter how much she may have wanted to. Only the manager had access to the vault. Instead, she offered to give Brian the money from the drawers, hoping it would suffice. Trembling, she reached inside her cash drawer and pulled out all the money inside. Then she went to the other stations, gathering their cash too. She put the money in a white canvas bag and handed it to Brian. 
Altogether, it amounted to $8,702. Now it was Brian's turn to panic. He was $241,000 short of the money he needed to get out of here alive. If he failed, he was dead, regardless of how hard he tried. Anxiously, he told the teller it wasn't enough, but the teller's hands were tied. Brian knew he didn't have time to argue. Each second was precious. At this point, his time was better spent trying to find the key to his collar. He turned and walked out of the bank. Eleven precious minutes had been wasted on the failed mission. At 2.38 p.m., Brian strolled out with a lollipop in his mouth, looking relatively calm considering the imminent danger he was in. In his right hand, he carried the cane-shaped gun. In his left, he twirled the bag of cash. As soon as he left, three people inside the bank called 911. Within two minutes, the Pennsylvania State Police were on their way. Back in the parking lot, Brian glanced at the notes his co-conspirators had given him, simply addressed to bomb hostage. They contained his first set of instructions for finding the key. It's unclear if Brian knew ahead of time just how elaborate these instructions would become. They read, exit the bank with the money and go to the McDonald's restaurant. Get out of the car and go to the small sign reading, drive through open 24 hours. In the flower bed by the sign, there is a rock with a note taped to the bottom. It has your next instructions. The gravity of the situation finally sunk in. He was being sent on a scavenger hunt for his life. Coming up, Brian races against the clock to find the keys. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now back to the story. On August 28, 2003, Brian Wells robbed a PNC bank in Erie, Pennsylvania, wearing a homemade collar bomb. Once a co-conspirator in the plot, he was now the unwitting hostage of his cohorts. After leaving the bank, Brian looked at the notes he'd been given by his captors, the instructions for finding the keys to his collar. But as Brian read through the pages, he realized this was just the first of many clues. The next would be hidden outside the nearby McDonald's. Without a moment to lose, Brian took off. He drove to McDonald's and walked up to the drive-through sign as instructed. 
he found the large rock in the flower bed, and underneath it was his next set of instructions. He was to drive back to the Eyeglass World parking lot in the same strip mall as the bank and remove a piece of orange tape stuck to his collar bomb. Then he was told to tie it around the fire hydrant at Peach Street to signal that he had the money and had left the bank. Brian raced over to Eyeglass World, but as he turned into the parking lot, he noticed the flashing lights of a police cruiser in his rearview mirror. His heart sank. It was only 2.49 p.m., 11 minutes since he'd left the bank, and already two state troopers had caught up with him. The troopers drew their guns and made their way over to Brian, who obediently got out of his car. They immediately noticed the brace-like device around his neck. Cautiously, they handcuffed his hands behind his back. From their car across the street, two of Brian's cohorts, Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Ken Barnes, watched it all happen in terror. There was a good chance Brian would turn on them, given the way things had played out. They made the quick decision to hit the road. Marjorie floored it out of the parking lot, tires squealing. She ran a red light and raced into the parking lot of an auto auction business. Bill Rothstein arrived moments later. After a brief discussion, they realized they needed to get rid of the remaining scavenger hunt clues. The notes would undoubtedly incriminate them if the police found them. But by removing the clues, they would seal Brian's fate. Marjorie hopped into Bill's car and told Bill and Ken to get in. Ken asked why they weren't taking Marjorie's car. Marjorie replied cryptically that she was thinking of selling hers. In reality, of course, she didn't want to be driving around the crime scene in a car that could immediately be traced to her. Frantic, Marjorie tore out of the parking lot and merged onto the highway, going the wrong way. Ken was terrified. Out the window, he saw another motorist, driving in the right direction, wagging his finger at Marjorie. But Marjorie had a plan. Back in the parking lot, a handcuffed Brian kneeled on the ground next to his car. More police were arriving. Brian warned the troopers that he was wearing a ticking time bomb. They immediately fell back in caution. At 3.04 p.m., 14 minutes before the imminent explosion, a state trooper summoned the Erie Police's bomb squad. Brian was growing exasperated. He pleaded with them to help him find the clues to the key. He even asked them to lift up his shirt and check the time remaining on the bomb box that dangled from his collar. But he'd have to wait until the bomb squad got there. The state troopers were still skeptical about the whole situation. If they were going to help, they'd need more information. They asked Brian what had happened. Although it may seem like an obvious question, there's a key reason why investigators start off like this. Reporter Eric Barker notes that what happened is an open-ended question. It's non-judgmental, shows interest, and is likely to glean more information than a simple yes or no question. Of course, this all depends on the witness telling the truth. Instead, Brian spun a different tale. 
He told them that he had been delivering a pizza to the Towers on Peach Street when a black man snuck up on him. Brian had tried to get away, but the man fired a gun. Brian said that he hadn't been hurt, but he did fall on the ground. The man had used that opportunity to fasten the collar bomb around his neck before ordering him to rob the PNC bank. Brian claimed that two other black men were sent to follow him to ensure he obeyed their instructions. It was a tale that closely resembled the truth. Brian likely lied about the identity of his captors out of fear. If they were listening, they would know he hadn't given them up. But the troopers continued to press Brian for details. What did the man look like? What was he wearing? What was he driving? Brian had no response. Then they asked Brian if he had a history of mental problems. Brian said no. Technically, a school psychologist had diagnosed him with psychopathic tendencies in junior high, but he wasn't about to say that to the police. The officials remained skeptical. They received many a fake bomb threat, and for all they knew, this was one of them. Before they sounded the alarms, they had to be sure that the bomb was real. Two of the troopers cautiously walked up to Brian. One used a knife to cut open his T-shirt and look at the box hanging from the metal collar. Through the steel mesh covering the box's opening, he could see a white plastic timer and a series of wires. Then he noticed a warning engraved on the metal panel on the side of the box. It said, do not open, do not remove. Startled, the troopers backed away. They said the bomb looked real, but until the bomb squad arrived, there was no way to be certain. From a safe distance, the troopers asked Brian how long he had before the bomb went off. Brian replied that he'd been given 20 minutes to get the money and another 50 minutes to follow the instructions back to the keys. But this was a mistaken figure. In reality, Brian had 50 minutes in total and time was running short. He pleaded with them to go find the next clue to locate the keys. But the authorities only kept questioning him, asking why he hadn't gone straight to the police. Brian reiterated that at least three other people were watching him to make sure he followed through with the robbery. And as far as Brian knew, this was true. Bill, Marjorie, and Ken had followed him to the bank, although now they were long gone, sweeping up the last clues that could save Brian's life. While Brian was pleading with the troopers, Marjorie tore down the wrong side of the highway in Bill's Mercury Marquee. After Ken pointed out her error, she pulled into the median, made a U-turn, and continued back. Suddenly, without explanation, she pulled to the side of the road. She simply told Ken she needed to go to the bathroom. Marjorie walked around the back of the car, climbed over a guardrail, and scuttled down an embankment. When she returned, she tossed something into the back seat. Ken didn't see what it was, only that it was wrapped in a white t-shirt. Investigators would later believe this was one of the scavenger hunt clues. Back in the Eyeglass World parking lot, FBI agent Jerry Clark arrived on the scene. 
He would become an essential figure in the investigation, but for now, Clark was convinced the whole thing was a hoax. As an expert interviewer, he was tempted to jump in and question Brian himself, but he didn't want to jeopardize the rapport the state troopers had already built with him. He figured he would have a chance to talk to Brian once this whole ordeal was over. But this was assuming the bomb was either fake or could be removed in time. In the meantime, Brian begged for the troopers to remove his handcuffs. The collar was heavy, and the weight from the box was hurting his neck. He wanted to use his hands to hold it up. But the troopers insisted that he remain seated until the bomb squad arrived. At his wit's end, Brian asked for a cigarette, but the troopers said no. Then he asked for a priest. Again, they said no. Finally, Brian asked why no one was trying to help him. He pleaded with the troopers to get the instructions out of his car. And then, strangely, he asked them to call Mama Mia's pizzeria and tell them about the situation. Suddenly, Brian said he could hear the bomb beeping. He frantically begged for the handcuffs to be removed. But no one helped him. No one could have. The timer beeped for 10 seconds. Brian shifted slightly. Then, he was dead. Coming up, the FBI receives a tip from an unlikely caller. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. At 3.18 p.m., the bomb strapped around Brian Wells' neck exploded. The blast slammed the metal box holding the bomb into his chest. It immediately cut into his heart, killing him instantly. It had only been an hour and a half since Brian had first left Mamma Mia's pizzeria on his fateful errand. Now, he was dead. The officers rushed towards Brian's body, but they were warned to stay back. No one could be sure that there wasn't a second explosive. At 3.21 p.m., three minutes after Brian's death, the bomb unit arrived. They approached Brian carefully and examined his body for other explosives, but none were found. FBI agent Jerry Clark stared at the wreckage. 
Just a few minutes before, he had been skeptical of Brian's story, but now he was fascinated. He had to be the one to solve this case. Local law enforcement wasted no time in verifying Brian's identity. Meanwhile, a state trooper drove to Mamma Mia's pizzeria where Brian said he worked. The trooper examined the restaurant's caller ID box to determine who ordered Brian's final delivery. They tracked the phone number to a payphone at a local shell station, but the trail went cold there. Meanwhile, state troopers and FBI agents swarmed the TV tower on Peach Street, looking for the fictional black man Brian had described as his captor, but they came up empty-handed. Back at the crime scene, authorities picked through the remnants of the blast, an ever-active double-A battery, scraps from two white sunbeam kitchen timers, and a bone fragment from Brian's neck. When they searched Brian's car, they found the instructions for the scavenger hunt. He had been telling them the truth. Investigators followed the instructions onto the highway, driving until they reached exit 180 for the Mill Creek Mall. They pulled to the side of the ramp and stopped at the specified road sign. From there, the notes said to walk into the woods and search for a container. When they found it, there was another note inside directing them to another stop along the highway. This time, they were to look for a small sign indicating the boundary from McKean Township. Once there, the instructions said to walk into the woods and follow orange tapes to the container with instructions inside. But when the investigators searched the woods, they found no container. Evidently, someone had gotten there before them. Agent Clark focused his attention on getting a search warrant for Brian's house. The unassuming pizza bomber was the key to cracking this case. Had someone truly forced his hand, or had he acted alone? At 1.25 the next morning, police blew down the door to Brian's cottage. They needed to be sure his home wasn't rigged with additional bombs. But the search produced little fruit. The only notable items were two spiral notebooks full of names and telephone numbers. It would become useful later on, but for now, the police were still struggling to cobble together a picture of what they were dealing with. Later that day, FBI agents made their way to a house near the Peach Street TV tower. They wanted to ask the resident, Bill Rothstein, whether he'd seen any suspicious activity the day before. They had no idea Bill was one of the masterminds behind the plot. Surprisingly, Bill answered the door. The agents questioned him about the previous day, and Bill feigned complete ignorance. He insisted that he never went near the TV tower and hadn't heard anything about the so-called pizza bomber. The agents were so satisfied with his response that they didn't even search his house. According to Agent Clark, they couldn't imagine someone participating in a plot that had unfolded so close to their own home, a fact Bill had counted on. 
The following day, on August 30th, investigators interviewed Brian's co-worker from Mamma Mia's Pizzeria, 43-year-old Robert Panetti. Once again, they had no idea they were talking to someone who had actually been involved in the robbery. But Robert's performance was less credible than Bill's. According to FBI agents, he kept fidgeting and insisting he was too busy to talk to them. The agents finally relented, saying that they would circle back with him. But they would never get the chance. After Brian was killed, Robert panicked. He was undoubtedly guilt-stricken at having played a part in the death. And he may have feared that Bill and Marjorie would turn on him, too. He was right to be afraid. His cohorts had no time or patience for a crisis of conscience. They couldn't risk him confessing. At some point on August 30th, mere hours after his visit from the FBI, Robert met up with his co-conspirators for the very last time. Ken Barnes gave him a drink, which Robert would have gratefully accepted given his nerves. But unbeknownst to Robert, The drink was spiked with methadone and Xanax. This would silence him once and for all. In the wee hours of the next morning, Robert went back home to the house he shared with his parents. His mother immediately recognized that something was wrong, but Robert assured her that he was okay. He said he had been at his sister's house and had drank too much beer. At 5 a.m., Robert's mother found him lying unconscious in his own vomit on the bathroom floor. An ambulance was called, but Robert refused to go to the hospital. By 9 a.m., he was dead. The coroner ruled Robert's death an overdose, but Agent Clark was deeply suspicious. Two Mamma Mia's employees had died within days of each other. Was it really a coincidence, or were they somehow connected? Clark turned the evidence over and over in his mind. Brian had told him that a black man had locked the bomb around him, but so far they'd turned up no such suspect. Still, he couldn't understand why Brian would lie if he knew the bomb was real. He had no reason not to take Brian at his word. Meanwhile, the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit in Quantico analyzed the envelope of instructions that had been given to Brian. They used these to create a profile of the person or people behind the plot. They wrote, The offender likes power. He's obsessive. He manipulates people. But he's also patient. This offender invested a great deal of thought and planning into this scheme. It's possible Brian knew the offender and misjudged the level of danger. It's also possible getting the bank's money was not the motivating factor. For whomever locked the bomb around Brian Wells, the ordeal was about control and manipulation. The profilers were spot on. Bill and Marjorie had a long history of devious and controlling behavior, and the manipulation had only just begun. Nearly a month after Brian's death, the investigation had still gotten nowhere. But Marjorie Deal Armstrong was growing more and more anxious. She was worried that the investigation would point to her and the other person she'd recently killed. A few weeks before the robbery, Marjorie had murdered her boyfriend, Jim Roden. 
He had initially been a part of the plot before trying to get out of it, and Marjorie had shot him to make sure he wouldn't squeal. Now, the body was stashed in a freezer at Bill's house. Marjorie was so paranoid that she slept in her Jeep at night, always prepared for a quick getaway. Finally, on September 20th, she and Bill decided to take action. They made plans to dismember Roden's body and crush it in a meat grinder. At 4.30 that evening, the pair headed to the store and left with an ice crusher. They went back to Bill's house and hung black tarps in the window to avoid being seen. At this point, Bill wanted to wash his hands of the whole mess. He had already helped to plan the robbery, built the bomb that killed Brian, and lied to the FBI agents not to mention stashing Jim's body in his freezer for Marjorie. Enough was enough. So while he and Marjorie were hanging the tarps, he insisted that they needed a stapler to help. He told Marjorie he had one in his van and quickly excused himself. When he got to his car, he immediately hopped in the driver's seat and sped away. Then he pulled out his cell phone and dialed 911. When the operator answered, Bill stuttered. At 8645 Peach Street, there's a woman with green slacks, a blue shirt, a brown purse. The operator asked Bill to slow down and tell her what the woman needed. Bill responded that there was a body inside the garage freezer. He explained that the freezer was his, but that he didn't want anything to do with the woman at the house. The operator asked for the woman's name. Bill replied, Marjorie Deal, D-I-E-H-L. Thanks again for tuning into Hostage. Next week, we'll be back with the unbelievable capture of Marjorie Deal Armstrong and the long and winding road to convictions. You can find more episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Hostage was written by Natalie McKeeran, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy. <laughs> <laughs>